And so um, my professor, David Dornboss, saw some research by uh, Dr. Kenneth Peters of our chemistry department, and he actually did a general carbon dioxide emissions. And in a series of other things, he did amount of energy used, amount of like fertilizer used, a bunch of other stuff. I just pulled a couple graphs out of his study, and it gives the total amount of carbon emissions that our campus had over a span of years. And in the last year, 2006, it was about 28,000, 28, yes. So it's a little bit lower than what they had, but this is kind of older data. So we, me being Professor Dornbos and I, looked at this and decided, well, what amount of carbon dioxide is our campus actually assimilating out of this to try and offset this? So me and him, and I had another coworker who was absent as well, sat down and we tried to figure out like how we could figure out how much carbon dioxide the campus actually sequestered. So our initial objective was to actually estimate the annual amount. And then the second one was to try and use this information and figure out how we could plan our green space a little better, if that was at all possible. We're having kind of an infestation of buckthorn everywhere, so we were wondering if maybe some data would help us like, figure out how we could get rid of it. I don't know. <laughs> and we also wanted to compare how our carbon uptake was to the carbon emissions given by Dr. Peters. And we wanted to generate a model which could be used in further years to estimate the amount of carbon the campus was fixing different with different years. So we thought that it would be about 30% of the uptake. Just we have we have a lot of green space. We have a forest, like a nature preserve, and then a wildlife sanctuary, and we have a lot of grass, like most campuses do. So we just thought the 30% sounded pretty good because we have a lot of land area. And so as we my data's kind of ruined because they already gave it, and it's not 30% at all, but oh well. So we were looking at how we are going to tackle testing all these different kinds of plants, this huge area. So we broke it down into three different things. We were going to have plant communities and representative plants in each community and then different replicates of each plant. So the plant communities, we walked around our campus and took a general survey and kind of looked at the different kinds of plants that were there the amount of sunlight they were getting, the um, amount of moisture, and just like the size of the vegetation, and also the care that these plants were getting. And we, we basically just did this by walking around and looking, and we wanted to know what made this section of campus different from the other section. So those were our kind of characteristics, and we came up with six, and I will go through those six a little bit. Maintained lawn, I think everybody kind of understands what that is. Gets, it gets a lot of direct sunlight, it's a lot of care. At Calvin, they take great pride in their green grass. I remember last summer, I was walking along this little bridge over our busy road, and I was looking at our lawn, and I was looking at the lawn between the roads, and ours was bright green, and theirs was brown. <laughs> so I was kind of different, and they, they put a lot of work into it. And we also included formal landscaping in this. We have a lot of planters and like juniper-type flower beds. But those kind of change frequently, so we included the in-air area in Maintain Lawn, but we didn't actually study them because they change so much. And the next one is an open prairie grassland, which is in a lot of, of the nature preserve and like alongside roads. And it's just not, it's not really cared for area. It's just kind of stuff that's popped up like behind baseball fields. And it's a lot of weeds and wildflowers and that sort of thing. And it also comes up 
like after there was some major disturbance, it's usually the first couple things to pop up. The next we had our secondary grassland, which was basically the same as the primary prairie, but it has shrub cover and some small trees. So we thought that that was a little bit different. It has more shade and different plants. And then our forest edge is where the buckthorn usually thrives. And this is really, really thick, shrubby area that's on the edge of forests. And there's very little sunlight that gets through. And it's asymmetric, so the trees are on one side, so it doesn't get the trees, the sunlight on the one side. And then we had two kinds of forests that we thought were representative. Um, one is like a smaller, like a younger forest with smaller trees, a lot of kind of unorganization in the canopy, a lot of stuff on the ground. And then the mature forests, which were bigger, older trees and more organization and looked clear. So those are our six plant communities. And then we had the representative species in each community. Um, there who knows how many plants out there on our campus. Like I'm sure someone has documented them, but there's no way I knew any of them. So to simplify our job this summer, we decided to pick two plants out of every plant community. So we went through and picked out the most abundant ones and the ones that were located in every location of the communities. And so for our little communities, we had some Kentucky bluegrass and the goldenrod and the wild strawberry for the prairie grassland, which the wild strawberry was delicious halfway through the summer. <laughs> And um, in the secondary grassland, we had some hawthorn and some dogwood. And the forest edge, there was really only two plants that grew there, and they were fighting each other like crazy. That was the buckthorn and the dogwood. And then in the forest, we picked some sugar maples and some white ash. And we haven't, well, Michigan's been kind of overrun with the um, emerald ash borer, but we've had, we have some good ash trees still on our campus. So we picked some of those and then had the beech and the oak in the mature forest. And then in the replicates, we took 10 replicates of each plant species. So that's pretty self-explanatory. So how we actually got to our number at the end. We did a series of experiments that helped get each step figured out. And the first one was to do light and soil data to see if there's any differences between communities other than the vegetation growing there. And this was more just to get us started in the whole field research going out and doing statistics and just like getting us into the field research mindset. So we took a quantum sensor and a soil moisture probe and just took some data on each of our replicate sites and just kind of for fun. And then the initial testing of our replicates, we wanted to see if the plants that we chose were decent specimens to actually study for the rest of the summer. And we also wanted to see if our equipment was up to the challenge. And what we were using was a CO2 meter, which is basically a box that has a little cuvette attached to it that you clip over the leaf. And when the leaf is clipped in, it's sealed off, and then a stream of air goes in through the machine, and one stream goes into the machine and it's tested for a CO2. And the other stream goes through the leaf and then passes back through and the CO2 and that is tested. And so those two are compared to see how much CO2 the leaf taken, has taken out of that stream of air. So, pretty nifty. And we also had a lamp that fit over it that gave us a, a steady stream of light. And so every, every leaf that we tested had the same amount of light, which was a lot of fun because that lamp was powered by a car battery that we had to carry around and hold up to the trees. So that was kind of fun. But we did five days of testing every single replicate. So 110 replicates for five days was a lot of sunlight. 
it was a good time. And we ran some statistics on that, and we saw that the replicates were good and the species were different, and some of the communities were uptaking CO2 differently as well. And then the next experiment we did was to figure out the amount of light actually reaching the ground in some of the forest canopies, because there are several layers of leaves instead of just the open, direct sunlight. So we wanted to see how much light was getting to the second, third, and fourth canopy layers. So we took another quantum sensor and we measured the amount of light that was reaching it in, in straight light, and then we would put one leaf over it and test that and, and like read that, and then put another leaf over it, read that, and at the end, after doing every single species several times, we took the percentage of light that was filtered out after every leaf layer. So we got a result of 100% well, light for the ones in the sun layer, 11% of the light reached the second layer, 5% reached the third layer, and 0.2% reached the fourth layer. So we used that, and then to figure out how many leaf layers were actually in our canopies, we took the leaf area index, which was a lot of fun. We had a camera hooked up with a fisheye lens, which takes 180 degree pictures, and the pictures look like this and they're pretty cool. We actually laid the camera down on the ground with the timer and tried to run away so fast that we weren't in the picture, <laughs> which was kind of challenging. And then we plugged this into a gap light analyzer, which takes the amount of sunlight that's coming through the picture and give us the amount of leaf layers there are. All right, and then we did the actual CO2 data collection on our replicates, and we used the light levels that we got from our light level experiment. We created screens to put over our lamp to get to simulate those different light levels and the amount of CO2 that those plants fix at the light levels. And we did five, five of the replicates instead of all 10 for two days with all four of those screens on there. Those were a couple long days. And with that data, we created light use efficiency curves, which basically can estimate the amount of carbon dioxide the plant can fix at a certain light level. And I will show you an example of that later. And then the last step was to estimate how much area each plant community had, well, the campus made up. And this was what I spent a lot of time on because we took these AutoCAD layers that were given to us by the physical plant that had all the buildings mapped out and all the paths and everything. And so I drew out where all the plant communities were on our campus and it took a very long time and I had to add up all the areas. So I am very proud of this map. It, it took me a long time. So, and so some of our results, these are just some of the statistics we ran. And um, if you look at the p-values for like the replicate, the replicates were different from each other and the communities were shown to be different from each other. And this was just in our initial, and same with the species, pretty much the same thing. And here's examples of the light use efficiency curves. These are actually the curves for all of the plants. And the ones that are higher up obviously fix more carbon than the ones that are lower down on the graph. And um, they flatten out at the top because as the light increases, um, light isn't the limiting factor anymore. It's the plant's machinery that's the factor. So as you get more and more light, the plants just can't really handle it. So that's why they flatten out a little bit. But as you can see, the plants differ in the amount of carbon they uptake. And so after all of that, 
we decided to put together this model that we could substitute information and hopefully get our final annual number. And we took light intensity data or photosynthetically active radiation from a sensor in Muskegon, Michigan, which is off of the coast of Lake Michigan, and it was from 2006, and we got a reading from every hour that we plugged in to our light use efficiency curves and got a number, and then we adjusted that for the number of layers in the canopy and summed it up, did a whole bunch of math stuff, and we assumed a 50% canopy makeup between the two plant, to our, our two representative plants, so we just said 50-50. I mean, it was kind of a blanket statement that could definitely be fixed with further study. But, um, so we did that, and then we added it up with the area, and then we got our 51 metric tons that they used in their presentation. So not so good. Oh, it's also adjusted for the growing season. We didn't think that many things were growing in the middle of winter, so we just took the days of the growing season. And so we concluded that there were better and worse plant communities in, the, in our campus in terms of CO2 uptake. Um, our maintained lawn wasn't doing so well, which I guess after further research this summer, it's doing better than we thought would. And that's good. I'm glad that further research is being done. There's a lot of extra stuff that this could use. Um, and definitely species are better and worse as well. And according to their presentations, you see that we have a long way to go to catch up with the CO2 emissions on our campus. And we did succeed in building a model. It's kind of confusing, and we're hoping to have a computer programmer get a hold of it and make it a little easier to input further data. But it can be done, and it can be used. And we used, we, we hope to apply this in green space planning. Like I said at the beginning, um, we wanted to try and plan our green spaces so they had plants that fix carbon better than other plants. And more plants can be studied. Like I said, we only studied 11 and there's more than 11 plants in Michigan. So I, <laughs> I hope that that can be continued to be studied. And more, more light levels can be added to the light use efficiency curves just to make them more and more accurate, just like ongoing data. And we also hope to get a weather station up on our campus that can actually take PAR data on our campus so it's more relative to our area. And this is an example of something I did on a poster, actually, and just like kind of what-if scenarios, like what if we had a bunch of buckthorn instead of other native species, and just like comparing the amount of carbon that would be uptake assimilated instead of if we had dogwood in the edge. And I mean, there would be more if there was buckthorn, but we don't necessarily want to do that because then what's the fun in that? There's no diversity. So just kind of things to think about. And... I'd like to thank Professor Dornbos with this project, and it was a lot of fun to work with him. And Sarah Vandenbrennen was my co-worker during the summer, and she is not here. And Dr. Pierce for his research, and Dean Gunnick, who actually gave me the layers at the physical plant, and Mr. Jack Kuiper, who funded the grant that allowed us to do this project, and just for Calvin, having a great place to study at. So. Any questions, you can direct them at Dave. No, I'm just kidding. You can ask me. <laughs> you go, go ahead. Go ahead.
That's true. And, and I don't really know what the grounds crew does with that. They definitely take it away because our campus is very pristine. So I'll have to look into that. That's a good question. Go ahead. Well, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about which plant species or plant communities um, sequestered or used more CO2 than others. Okay, yeah. Well, definitely the forest edge was the leader in that. The buckthorn was, like, amazing at it. That's why it grows so well, we're pretty sure. And so there's a lot of buckthorn, and that one is really quick. And also the gray dogwood, also in the forest edge, is pretty quick at it. And um, actually, the oak was pretty bad in the mature forest. But it was kind of a dry year. Like, I kind of have to take that into account. And we were using some of the shade leaves that we could actually reach. I mean, I'm only 5'4", so I can't really get up to the top. So that can be also fixed. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't really know. I'll have to look. hearing this? They got great ideas. <laughs> Go ahead. I consider that you might add to your plans looking at an algal farm which will trap all the CO2 and regenerate carbon. And to do the one has been developed theoretically by Altec. They have a whole village that, that, that potentially can maintain a neutral carbon range. So look up Altec and the algal farm that will make a lot of carbon products that you can use. And it'll trap. You can trap and absorb the CO2 from your power generating system and so forth and feed it into the other plant. Christine, I've been trying to reconcile the relative economy of Calvin College. There's a community of several thousand people who are producing, by your measurements, 60 some metric tons of CO2 a year. And Governor Schwarzenegger tells me that the average Californian is producing 14 tons per person per year. Now that's including shipping and commerce and the things you don't do, but my gosh, what a difference. <laughs> you must start off feeling very good. <laughs> what do you think is the huge difference? Do, are you perhaps underestimating, or do you think that the infrastructure in California of industry and commerce is so vast that it swamps the kinds of numbers that you are generating? I don't know, like, we didn't study all the shipping and stuff that goes into that. I don't know how in-depth they've studied the California rate per person, but, like, I don't know. But it's almost <laughs> more than order of magnitude greater yeah. than Calvin College. Yeah, I don't know. 
Maybe because we're poor. <laughs> Go ahead. I haven't looked too much. I don't know if there's too much out there. We thought this, we were looking around for it, and this is kind of a new thing. So I don't know if they've had any come out since. Have they, Dave? Have you seen anything? There's very little, but what we have seen Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I have a question about the precision of your calculations. Uh, I think at one point you listed tens of significant figures. Uh, how good is the number? Is it plus or minus five percent or ten percent? Well, I don't. We we just took an estimate, so I don't really know how close it is because we just kind of skimmed the surface and the plants that we could study and like the time of day that we could study. I mean, we weren't out in the middle of the night figuring out how much the plants were respirating in terms of CO2. So I don't really know what percentage, like, error it is. So, and they're doing further research on it this summer, so hopefully they'll get more accurate. Like, I don't really know. <laughs> I said before, the three of you began your, your three couple talks that I've been tasked as has all the, have all the session chairs to try to write up the papers and terse summary. So what do you want me to write? What's the takeaway from Calvin College in, in a sentence? Two sentences, maybe. What would you, what would you say? Hmm. We are good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the key would just be to reduce our emissions. Mm -hmm. Reduce our emissions. To reduce our emissions as far as for our project is carbon neutrality. So do you think carbon neutrality is a useful and workable goal for Calvin College and a, even a biblical one? Is that where you're going to stand? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, if we don't ever achieve carbon neutrality, at least it's something for us to pursue. Um, it's, it's a good goal. Um, up to this point, I guess I would really have assessed the problem and the magnitude of it. Um, and, and now it's time to start reaching for solutions. And we outlined a bit of a plan for that. Uh, but probably ought to stand up, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll sit down. That's uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, we, yeah, we outlined kind of the, the problem and, and uh, picked up on the magnitude of it, but it's, it's time to start looking for solutions. Um, so I guess, I don't know, from the student body stance, if I can actually speak as a representative of 4,000-plus people, I guess, <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Um, so, yeah, time, time to start looking for solutions. And uh, if, if we ever achieve full neutrality, um, that's great. It's very impressive for the campus. And I'm sure they'll use that as both a bragging and marketing tool uh, for future students. But um, if not, at least make steps in the right directions towards it. So, so maybe I could say uh, enough with Governor Schwarzenegger's easy goals. We're going for carbon neutrality. <laughs> oh, I would assume Governor Schwarzenegger has a lot more on his plates than we do, so I would hate to say that he has easy goals. But, uh, he's also dealing with, uh, with yeah, thriving industries and people working hard, and I'm sure he's in much more of a hole than Kelvin is, um, just because it's California. Um, where, whereas we have people that nine months out of the year sit in dorm rooms and study, as opposed to try to produce things. 
Um, so I, I think he's got just just as happy as a task at hand. Um, it, it'd be nice to say that we, as a percentage, produce a lot or emit a lot less than him, though. So. Well, you do less than me personally. How many homers does he have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last. Yes, uh, I work for the state of California at the State University, and I'll ask Arnold if he'll come next year and explain the 14 number for you, provided, provided he's able to pass our budget for this year. Do you think the number is well close to 14? I and the goal of 10. I have my I have my doubts. I like their numbers better. <laughs> Thank you very much.